Welcome to the Opium Den. I'm Daniel Williams. Well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. It's another Thursday evening, our regular time and place. And uh, things are good down here in Southwest Florida. Bahama, our 11-year-old chocolate lab is blissfully laying on the rug here inside the opium den. She has been medicated for most of the day. We've had a lot of a lot of stormy weather down here as usual. I give the weather report every Thursday night and it's sound, beginning to sound like a broken record. But uh, the rain has subsided. Uh, we expect more before the evenings close, but we're safe and warm and comfortable inside the opium den and we hope that you are safe and warm and comfortable wherever you are tonight and tonight we have um, a special guest that's going to be joining us live so unfortunately tonight you won't be able to call in uh, the show our Skype machine uh, is not as sophisticated as we would like it but you can send send an email our guest tonight his name is Sean Haw, and uh, Sean's a friend of mine, and we met when I entered the, uh, the presidential, presidential race for the Libertarian Party in 2008. Uh, Sean was the, uh, the political director of the Libertarian Party at that time, and uh, one of the first uh, fellows I met when I went up to Washington, D.C. to take a sniff of things in the nation's capital. And now Sean is the um, executive director of a nonpartisan, it must be mentioned, nonpartisan, nonprofit, 501c4 corporation named Free and Equal Elections Foundation, or FIEF, I guess would be the acronym, Free and Equal Elections Foundation. And they're an advocacy group dedicated to election reform and improving ballot access laws uh, in the United States. Uh, many people uh, are fed up with the two-party system. And uh, now they're actually being made more aware of, of why, uh, why they're stuck with just two parties as the two-party system, the Republicans and the Democrats work very hard to keep third-party candidates off of state and national uh, ballots. So Sean is a, tire, a tireless advocate for uh, improving ballot access laws here in the United States. And the Free and Equal Elections Foundation was founded by a woman by the name of Christina Tobin. And Miss Tobin was Ralph, Ralph Nader's uh, 2008 National Ballot Access Coordinator, working to ensure that Ralph Nader was included on as many U.S. ballots as possible. So we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about ballot access, frustration with with uh, the two-party system, and Sean is one of the most astute fellows. Sean also will be talking about Sean's. Uh, insane project and that's uh, an undertaking that he began back in March of 2007 to 
listen to listen through his entire music collection and to show you how large and extensive that collection is he began over two years ago and he is just to the letter m he was going to listen to it all alphabetically as of uh, 5 15 um, <clears throat> that would be may the 15th of this year as i mentioned he had gotten as far as Joni Mitchell, he's into the M's. Uh, we'll, we'll get an update on that. And we're also going to talk uh, drug policy with Sean. He's not uh, a, you know, a full member of the drug reform movement, but he is knowledgeable about that. As I mentioned, his, his main, main menu item is uh, ballot access. But Sean is a very well-rounded individual, and he has some interesting and astute comments to make about drug policy. So we're going to talk about that and uh, whatever else is on Sean's mind this evening. And uh, just one more plug for the Free and Equal Elections Foundation. If you go to their uh, website, just Google Free and Equal Elections Foundation, uh, you'll see that they are uh, they're advertising a book uh, titled Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice in a two-party tyranny. And that's written by Ms. Teresa Amato. She was also uh, working for Nader. She was his campaign manager, national campaign manager, in the 2000 and 2004 presidential election. Uh, Teresa's book is a true story, sad but true, a true story about how the Democratic Party attempted to boot Ralph Nader out of the 2004 presidential elections. And it also includes uh, some insightful analysis of other third-party and independent campaigns out there. And the book includes a blueprint for ballot access across the United States. So if you see a theme building here, it is the difficulty of independent and third-party uh, political organizations from gaining ballot access. Again, we bitch about the two-party system, but uh, we know it's rigged. But now we're understanding, people are getting a better understanding of just how rigged it is and how difficult it is for independent political parties, third party, uh, to uh, to gain ballot access and give greater greater freedoms and greater choice to the electorate out in ballot land. So anyway, that's what we're going to be speaking about tonight. If any of these issues, uh, music, politics, and drugs, uh, have an interest, uh, stay with us and hear what what Sean has to say and give us send us an email. I almost said give us a call like I normally say every Thursday, but you can't call us tonight. I apologize. Our Skype machine, as I mentioned earlier, is not quite as sophisticated as we would like. So we can't have Sean live on the phone and take in another call. But there's always the internet email. You can send us an email tonight. It's uh, right there on the home page. It says email Daniel. Hit that button and you're all set up. You get the email form. If you have a comment or a question about tonight's subject matter, or if you're a friend of Sean and just want to Give him a shout out, please do. We'll uh, we'll do our best to get to each and every comment and contact we receive. 
And as I mentioned in my uh, my little blog for the show this evening, uh, soon after the show, we are packing up and heading for the hills. One of my oldest and dearest friends, uh, we'll just call him Gonzo. Uh, he's built a home up in the up in the hills above Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, which is out in the absolute middle of fucking nowhere. But it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful area, and it's a, a great place to howl at the moon, which we intend to do this weekend with another uh, couple that uh, that we know lives in Ocala. Ron and Linda will be accompanying us up to the to the mountain home. So. I'll be back in time for next week's show. That could be good news or bad news. Depends upon how you <laughs> how you like this show or not. But we we're not gonna we're not gonna miss the lick. We'll be back next Thursday, and we also have uh, <clears throat> an interview coming up next Thursday uh, with a with a lady by the name of Tamara Holden, and uh, she's a a very uh, very smart and dare I say uh, good looking female attorney up in, in uh, Chicago that does a lot of work uh, pro bono, and she specializes. One of her specialties is uh, getting uh, records expunged. If you were arrested, whether you were convicted or not, you have a record, and most people don't know that they can have that record expunged. So uh, Tamara does a good job in that area, so we'll be looking forward to speaking to her in the coming days. And as soon as we have that interview, we'll have it posted into the archives section of the Opium Den. And also, uh, we are available on iTunes now. Uh, Dan Rodigal, our technical wizard and guru, has got us hooked up to download all of the shows via iTunes. It's a free subscription service, so it's just another another place to uh, to access or to uh, get inside the opium den. We're having a couple of trouble, a couple of problems with our iTunes uh, situation right now. You can download. I'm not saying that it's inoperable, but there's a couple of uh, a couple of glitches that Dan is hard at work with the geniuses at Apple to uh, make sure we can get every bit of content that we blather about on Thursday night, getting it into iTunes. So, like I said, we're going to give uh, give Sean Haw a uh, a call and uh, get him on get him on the line here and talk about things. That's the old familiar. Please enjoy the music while oh. your party is reached. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can hear that, but that's uh, I think that's Vivaldi's Four Seasons ringtone, which is interesting. Howdy. Hey, howdy, Sean. Daniel Williams, how are you? Doing great. Hope you're doing well. Well, I, I think we're going to survive down here. We've got our uh, usual stormy weather, but, you know, it's summertime in southwest Florida, so we can't do, can't do much about that. So I told, uh, as I opened up the show tonight, uh, I talked about uh, you being our special guest, and I gave a little bit of your history, not, uh, not a lot, but we'll talk, uh, we'll talk more about that. We talked about uh, the Free and Equal Elections Foundation, which you're the ex- executive director of. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, your insane project. I think that's pretty interesting. Okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, some, uh, and some general drug policy deals. So why don't you first off uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, 
We'll give we'll give uh, free and equal a good plug here. Tell us a little bit more about the foundation and uh, and how it works and what work you're doing. Well, we you can find us at freeandequal.org, and we're concentrating on ballot access reform across the country. Now, when you and I met, I was the Libertarian Party political director, and at the time, I was working pretty closely with my counterpart with the Ralph Nader campaign, Christina Tobin. And we worked together very closely on uh, sharing petitioners, you know, working together, coordinating our efforts to save the Libertarian Party and the Nader group a, a lot of money and help each other get on the ballot. And we developed such a positive working relationship. And our, our passion, both of us, is to see everybody get on the ballot, no matter who wants to run. Yeah, the good, the um, bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah, well, anybody who is a citizen, that's their birthright. You know, we both, uh, I like to say we're of the same church. And the uh, main tenet of that church is that uh, every single citizen has an equal share of the right responsibilities in this government. That's how it's supposed to work under our Constitution. The closer we've gotten to that in our history, the better things have been for the people. So, yes, you know, try to let everybody have their voice. Try to let anyone who wants to try, who wants to challenge the uh, Democratic and Republican Party duopoly and run on their own party, run as an independent, you know, be able to have an independent voice in politics that's not controlled by the people who are in power now. Well, that's the, that's uh, yeah, that's what you find out there. Yeah, it's democracy. Yeah, excuse me for interrupting. I, yeah, I, I, I tend to do that. <laughs> right. Hey, but it's my show. But, I, you know, I already interrupt for, for a good cause. Now, mo- most people... Uh, it seems that there is a growing and large dissatisfaction with the with the two party system. That's fairly evident, but it, it's becoming more evident, I believe, through work that the Free and Equal Foundation does, as well as other ballot access advocacy groups. People are beginning to realize just how difficult it is to have greater freedoms and more choice uh, when it comes to ballot. They are getting more familiar with how difficult it is to get your name on the ballot. So uh, talk a little oh, yeah. bit talk a little bit about just just how rigged it is by the, the two party duopoly. Well, as more and more people become more interested in exercising their independent voice in American politics, the uh, the two party system there is trying to dig in their heels. We've been doing a lot of work the last several weeks in New York where candidates have been trying to get on the ballot for local elections and they have a challenge system there which pretty much anyone can use, and this is often used to make sure that there's only one government-approved candidate on the general election ballot in all kinds of jurisdictions all over New York State. Uh, So all of these ballot access laws that are put up to give, to unlevel the playing field, basically, what we look at right now is one set of election law for Democrats and Republicans with special benefits, and one for everybody else with special burdens on them. So, for example, one thing that we're in the middle of publishing right now is our rankings for the various states. Uh, you know, there are some states, well, Georgia, for example, is one state where no one, except for a Democrat or Republican, has been able to run for Congress for 40 years, I believe 45. Uh, you know, uh, the Libertarian Party managed to get on the ballot here in North Carolina. Uh, but it cost almost a quarter million dollars. 
Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't like to. I don't like to. That's a pretty massive filing fee in order to get your candidates on the ballot. Right, and I, I don't like to throw around the word conspiracy, but there does seem to be a, a coordinated effort to maintain uh, the duopoly status of the of the two uh, two major parties. But it would seem that the, to, in order to do that, there has to be a coordination from you know from local, state, and even in the, on the federal level to. To, to keep this uh, to keep this uh, going is that is that not true? Well, well the conspiracy is quite open. Uh, the f- situations we're facing in New York, uh, the Democratic and Republican parties are working together quite openly. Uh, in Suffolk County, there are three candidates being run by the Libertarian Party for various countywide offices, and they're in court now. But the uh, person who challenged tried to challenge them off the ballot. Is, at, is not only a Democratic state committee woman, but also a, an employee of the Suffolk County Board of Elections herself. Uh, so, yeah, they use, they use the power of appointment to put people in the administration of, the, of our elections that are going to run things their way. And then, you know, they establish the rules in a way that candidate, if candidates aren't connected to the political machine already or don't have a lot of money, then they can't get it, even get on the ballot to challenge. Well, it uh, seems like it seems it, it sounds like the uh, the um, the influence of the legal system is there as well. I mean, judges and, and the court system. It would seem that they're complicit to a to a small degree or to a large degree with the two parties because uh, wow. a proper challenge in the courts would uh, strike down the uh, the uh, the monopoly the duopolistic efforts of the two parties. So how does how is the the, judici- the uh, judiciary uh, complicit in this? Well, the again gives an excellent example of that. They had to basically go judge shopping. Um, they spent a whole day going from judge to judge, and the first five judges that they saw recused themselves from the case. And we, I think the reason for that is that they are elected on a partisan basis in New York. You know, one judge came right and said, I will never touch an election law case, you know, because I was elected as a Republican. (laughs) So, you know, it is, um, you know, in states, it, it varies from state to state. We have a lawsuit going on now here in North Carolina, and that partisan influence seems to be less, and I think in part because even though the judges are connected to parties, they're, they run on a nonpartisan basis, so they have a little bit more independence in that case. Um, you know, it's, it's always, you know, in any issue, it's always a crapshoot going into court, just because you never know if the judge is going to actually read your papers, is actually going to be competent, much less nonpartisan. Uh, but then a lot, but the beauty of the court system, too, is that there are a lot of judges out there who are who do take their roles very seriously, excuse me, who see themselves as public servants, and who try to live up to that robe that they're wearing. Uh, so, you know, the advantage of going to court, a lot of times you have to, but it is quite possible still in America to get a very positive ruling. And another nice thing about the system we have, too, is that if you don't like the ruling that you got the first time, you can appeal. You can keep going for a few levels at least 
until you find a judge that is willing to rule on your constitutional points. Well, what do you, what do you, uh, to, to kind of sum up a little bit of, of the bottled access uh, uh, challenges that uh, third parties and independent parties face out there, uh, what, what do you think it's going to look like in, uh, in 2010 and, and again in 2012? What's on the horizon for improving ballot access? Or are, you, are, you, or are you just swimming against the tide and treading water? Well, I, no, I think that there's a lot of progress, and it's coming from the grassroots. There's nothing that free and equal does can be, uh, you know, I, I don't have a job unless there are people out there who want to exercise that independent voice, who want to run under a third-party banner or no banner at all. And so we're certainly getting a lot of work on the petitioning side. We have a corporate side, too, which does petitioning. And we were very successful in getting candidates on the ballot. In fact, in Rochester, one candidate that we worked for full-time, we got him on the ballot both as a Democrat and as a Libertarian, because he can do that in New York. Uh, he was the only candidate who survived the challenge in this last period. So, you know, uh, I guess that's a plug for the, uh, my, my advertisement there. You can find us at freeneagle.org and give me a call, and I can talk to you about uh, helping you get on the ballot. But, you know, that costs money, too. And the part of the reality of this, this system is that it does take money to be competitive. And that's the challenge that we're finding a lot of times is that the average citizen um, doesn't have the knowledge or, or the wherewithal a lot of times to be able to raise the kind of money to become the kind of household name that the, that the, <clears throat> that Democrats and Republicans are able to do. So the people are there, and with the people, we can get them on the ballot. And then it's sort of taking it to the next level is getting them the publicity Oh, but the beautiful thing about especially the 2010 elections coming up is that people are definitely of a mind to throw all the bums out at every level. You know, it used to be the saying that, well, I hate Congress, but I love my congressman, and that's why incumbents kept getting reelected. I think that's changed in the last year, year and a half. I think people are willing to throw out their own congressman now. Oh, and that gives a tremendous opportunity. So people are looking for choices. They're looking for alternatives, and that's another place where the grassroots is, is the cavalry, you know, coming to save the nation because people are going to demand, uh, demand to see these choices on the ballot. They're going to hear about candidates who want to run and are stopped, and that's motivating them. Ballot access a few years ago really was a, a very unsexy issue. And you'd have to explain it to people for a while before you get them to think that maybe this is really a relevant issue. Yeah, you got to get pretty creative to make ballot access sound sexy, but uh, yeah. it, it, it can be done. Now we got a—I'm going to interrupt you here. We got a people now. Yeah, we got a comment here from Pam Vrooman. I don't know if oh, uh, oh you know Pam. Yeah. yeah. Well, she Pam said go way back. Well, that's good. She's got her iTunes link up and running, and she said. Uh, Sounds interesting, so let's uh, just let you know that Pam is uh, is tuning in. All right, we'll we'll, well, try, we'll try to keep her we'll try to keep her uh, keep her interested here, and hopefully she'll uh, she'll stick with <laughs> she'll stick with us <laughs> as we talk about the very very sexy topic of ballot access. Well, also, it's gratifying to see 
people are really getting involved. I just want to give a plug for one more project. Please. That Free and Equal is coming out with probably towards the end of the year. We're working on ballot access guides, both candidate-oriented. You know, how do you get on the ballot in your state or in, or in your town? Uh, you know, a state-by-state guide. And the same thing for a lobbying effort. They have come up with model bills for every state and put people together uh, at the grassroots levels in each state to lobby for these bills. Coming up in 2011, generally, it's when state legislatures are going to start considering these kinds of bills again. And, uh, And they'll be thinking about redistricting at that time as well. So it's going to be really good. We're building up towards what I think is going to be a very interesting time where we're going to be able to get a lot of reform. At, in the, at the legislative level and in the courts within a couple of years. So it's, it's exciting to be a part of that. And it's well, exciting to see all kinds of people coming out and realizing that this is a very important issue to them. Because if we can't choose who we want to be in office for us, then our democracy really is dead. Well, I think it's, I think it's very admirable that uh, folks like you and freeandequal.org and other organizations out there are doing the, the nuts and bolts and the grunt work to, uh, to, to see to it that we have as much freedom and choice as we can when it comes to voting in our elected officials. So I want to I kind of switch gears here. I know ballot access is real sexy, and I'm, I'm sure Pam is <laughs> sitting there in painted breath. We're going to try to kick it up a notch here and get into... Uh, uh, my zone, where I'm a little more comfortable, we're going to talk about some sure. drug policy. And you had mentioned uh, when we spoke last, uh, arranging for uh, for tonight's uh, tonight's appearance, you had mentioned uh, a, a, a lady in uh, North North Carolina by the name of Catherine Caps. Who uh, this is a ten year old story, but it helps to uh, to illustrate uh, some of the problems that we've had for. And she was one of the early. Early, victim, um, early victims of our militarized uh, drug, uh, drug enforcement uh, people out there. There was a local SWAT team in North Carolina 10 years ago. We'll let, I'll let you talk about Catherine yeah, Katz, but well, I want to I kind of set it up that uh, around, yeah. two, around 2000, 2001, and, and especially mo- more so after September the 11th, um, our government has, uh, has fortified their Drug Enforcement Administration militarized local police uh, enforcement uh, departments and increased the the number and uh, and uh, nastiness uh, of the DEA. And Catherine Caps was one of the early victims. So I want you to go ahead and uh, and tell our listeners uh, the, the Catherine Caps story. Well, it's, yeah, it's a good segue actually because it's again this is about the joy of getting out there in the field and helping people and, and how that really helps you in your life and your activism years down the road. And this did happen uh, about nine years ago. A two-year-old lady named Catherine Caps who lived here in Durham, uh, very infirm, uh, could only communicate with her caretaker, her niece, Shirley Smith, using a chalkboard, uh, could hardly take care of herself. And the confidential informant told the district attorney's office that uh, she was selling crack. Cat- Catherine Caps was selling crack. Uh, Catherine, Cat- uh, Catherine Caps was selling crack. An 80-year-old and, uh, infirm woman. Yeah, and and they, uh, without any investigation, they just took the word of this confidential informant 
and at 2.31 afternoon, they sent in the full SWAT team, busted down her door. Uh, I'm convinced sent her to an early grave with a fright. She also had a gentleman caller at the time, a very similar fellow in his early 80s, uh, who named uh, John Cates, who uh, they claimed uh, threatened them, and they beat him up and even strip-searched strip him right there in the bathroom, cavity-searched the whole nine yards. And he ended up uh, suing the city himself, and, of course, they found no crack at all. Um, and the local Libertarian Party saw this as a, you know, sort of an I told you so issue. You know, we've been telling you for years this is what's going to happen when you have the war on drugs. And we started jumping up and down, you know, and screaming about it. And the local NAACP also got very heavily involved in the issue. So we sort of looked at each other, jumping up and down at the same time, and decided we start, should start working together on this issue. And that developed a relationship with a lot of uh, very interesting cross-pollination of community activists here in Durham. But we worked together together. Uh, uh, we went to the city council, we went to the district attorney, we went to the police department, and we kept uh, demanding some justice for Catholic caps. And we, they never really admitted, up front, you know, openly that they had erred. However, I did find out later that the Durham Police Academy now teaches the Catherine Caps incident uh, to their young recruits as an example of what not to do. Now, was there, there were, there were no, there were no process, I'm sorry, Sean, but there were no prosecutions involved in, in Catherine's case and, and and is Catherine still, uh, still among us? No, she died, um, just a few months later and I am convinced that she was kind of hurried to an early grave. Well, I would think so for God's sakes. Yeah, she was hospitalized a short time after that. Uh, and it was such a traumatic experience for her that, like I said, I, uh, I do think it contributed to her death, although that's, of course, speculation on my part. Well, I think it's pretty, uh, but, pretty good speculation. You know, I, I'm feeling pretty safe about it. But the interesting thing, why it's coming up again now in Durham, is because the Libertarian Party has a, good city count, a very good city council candidate, a fellow named Matt Drew. We're getting him out there in the community, and we're finding out that, uh, and there's also another uh, local issue where we're encountering a lot of the same people that we worked with on the Cap and Caps issue. So it's very easy for us to get involved in this issue to try fighting for a local bookstore that is poised to be a victim of, of, of for lack of a better term, rezoning. You know, to use corporate welfare to move them out of the building. Where is it a dirty now. bookstore or just a... No, it's an African-American cultural center. And they also have a restaurant there. It's called the No Bookstore on Fayetteville Street. It's a fantastic store. It's been a fantastic resource for Durham for years. I was up in New York City working to get these candidates on the ballot last month. And I spoke with people in New York City who had heard of No Bookstore and had a very positive impression of Durham because of it. And one of them even said, I wish we had a store like that here in New York City. And to me, it was a pretty amazing statement that we have a very unique cultural resource here that we're interested in seeing uh, preserved. And of course, the libertarian angle on it is, you know, don't use corporate welfare 
to disrupt local businesses. And, uh, you know, so we're finding, as we're getting involved in this issue, and as we're running the city council candidate this year, that it has been incredibly easy for us to reconnect with the very same people that we worked with 10 years ago. And so I guess the, the, the reason why I was thinking about it now and why I, why I wanted to speak with you about it now is just to let people know that if you get out there in the field and you help the victims of the drug war, they actually, you know, provide, stand up for people by name and provide assistance to them and advocate for justice for them, then that's going to just help you. I, I, I think of very few things that I've done in my political life. Now, I've been at this now for over 15 years. I, I can't think of anything that I've done that has gained me more friends, more love, more respect in the community than than what I did with Catherine Cass and by well, extension my organization. I want to I want to make I want to make clear uh, on uh, for on, on a point, Sean. And, and I hate to interrupt you, but I want to make clear. In this, in Catherine Capp's case, there there were no grand juries, no indictments, no prosecutions, nothing well, with regard to the officers involved. Uh, no, uh, there was no discipline of the officers. The district attorney himself was quite defiant in public and basically tried to convict her in the press. Now he was utterly convinced that she was selling crack. An eighty-year-old woman, an eighty-year-old yeah. infirm woman, he was convinced was selling crack. Yeah, well, fucker was, smokes crack himself. Was, well, this is the same district attorney's office that uh, handled the Duke Lacrosse case. If you're familiar with it. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> well, we knew they were smoking crack back then. Good yeah. Lord! That's just I mean, in public. That was the one thing I do regret about the, our, our involvement is that we could never get anybody to fess up. We could never get anybody to publicly apologize, to acknowledge the very plain facts of the matter that this woman had had this horrible injustice visited upon her. Um, well, don't, don't feel bad, Sean. I mean, confidential informant. Yeah, don't, don't feel bad. Uh, I mean... That you that you were unable to to bring any uh, any greater success to that because it, your your story is, is is replicated across the United States where a number of Catherine Caps have had similar experiences where uh, yeah. confidential informants give erroneous information the cops break in uh, frisk people strip people shoot their dogs do all of these terrible things in the name oh, of yeah. fighting the drug war and nothing ever happens Rare, rarely do you see. A, a law enforcement agency that has conducted one of these illegal middle of the night no knock raids face any kind of, of consequence. Well, except for one incident here, which is of a slightly different nature in Durham, um, the it's almost like the dog that didn't bark. You know, the one thing I can point to is that this kind of thing has not happened again since. And so the value of getting up and speaking out and demanding justice and, and, you know, getting up and saying publicly, this is wrong, and I need everybody to know that this is wrong, uh, you may not get any public satisfaction out of it, but you could very well get the kind of result that we got here in Durham, which is that at least silently they're going to agree with you through their actions. Uh, you can get local law enforcement to realize 
this is this is not a productive path for him to be on. <laughs> well, you're, you're right, and and it, it is sad that we don't see uh, more uh, more grand jury subpoenas and prosecutions in these cases. But what I find uh, equally interesting is that we don't come down on law enforcement for for these egregious acts against the public. What we do. Uh, come down on law enforcement, and I do a segment here on the show every week. It's called "Cops on Drugs," and we talk we talk about police officers across the country. And there's there's never there's never a lack of of uh, information here. And we talk about cops across the country that are, are directly involved in uh, drug dealing, uh, yeah. things of that nature. So we we, we 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 turn a blind yeah we turn a blind eye to these no-knock egregious raids, but we do, the only time we can get the cops is when they're stealing coke from the evidence locker or, or shaking down uh, drug dealers. It's a, it's a very strange dichotomy there. Well, it's a very corrupting influence on law enforcement. I personally have an extremely high opinion of police officers in general, because that's another thing, another value, getting out in the community and being an activist and working with people, and you meet real people. Uh, I've met a lot of people who aren't police officers anymore. You know, I know them by name uh, now, and it's a lot easier to, to understand their motivations. And, and like in this Catherine Camps case, part of the problem was they were following the law. You know, that, that uh, the law, you know, gives local law enforcement justification. Yeah, but it also gives them discretion. It also gives them discretion, well, and, and police that will strip search an 80-year-old woman uh, has violated that discretion. And if you give them resistance when they overstep the bounds of that discretion, just as we did here in Durham, you can put a stop to it. I mean, resistance is the key. They'll do, the government will do anything that they think they can get away with. But if the people get up and you know, stand up, and, and resist and say, no, this is not the America I signed up for. This is not what I was taught in elementary school about what the Constitution guarantees for me uh, or for my neighbors. And we don't want you doing that anymore. Uh, that, that is a very powerful statement that they have to pay attention to and that you can get them to change their behavior and at least back off. Unfortunately, a lot of times it means that there is a victim like the Catherine Cats that you have to respond to in order to get some change. Uh, and unfortunately, that's just the nature of politics. Well, let's let's keep with let's keep with politics and shift gears just a little bit here, and and uh, we'll still be on the drug uh, the drug policy topic, yeah. but we'll move into the Libertarian Party. the the most sure. The most recent Libertarian newsletter I got, I was reading the. Uh, the letters to the editor uh, section, and there was a uh, a libertarian who had written in, and his name escapes me at this moment, but he was writing in to say that uh, writing in to complain that the uh, the last libertarian uh, newsletter that went out, uh, the cover story was about uh, drug prohibition, and this writer was writing in to say that he thought that was uh, a stupid thing to to uh, to put on our front page because we're known in some circles as the the drug legalizing political party wow. and he felt that that was in poor taste and just continued to 
turn yeah. off people. He said he wouldn't show it to any of his friends because he was embarrassed. But yet in that same issue, I turned to page three, and they showed a picture of, uh, I think, a Libertarian Party supporter, and he was holding up a sign, and uh, I think it was Barbara, he was complaining against Barbara Boxter out in California, and the, in the, in the X in her name was, uh, was a swastika. So here, here, this guy, I wonder how, what he felt about uh, Libertarians representing themselves uh, with, with that type of posture yeah. as, a, as opposed to uh, advocating for a repeal of the most destabilizing wow. domestic policy we've got going today. Yeah, I, I, I generally avoid anything having to do with Nazi Germany and political discourse whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. whether, whether it's drugs or anything. Well, never ends well. No, but the getting to that letter, though, I mean, that debate has been going on within the Libertarian Party for longer than I've been in it. And the interesting thing is that our, our position, the Libertarian position, to legalize all drugs and completely end drug prohibition has not changed over time, but America has been coming our way. And now we're being seen to a larger and larger degree as the visionaries. And people recognize, oh, these guys were actually right all along uh, you know, about this issue. Uh, you look at a lot of the poll numbers, you know, a majority of the people not only support the legalization of marijuana, they've used marijuana. Well, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the now, statistics the, show that over half the adult population has used an illegal drug at least once in their lifetime, and, and marijuana is obviously the over, overwhelming choice. And now we have uh, probably, my guess is between 35 to 40 million uh, American adults uh, will be getting high at one time or another uh, this year. So we have a significant... <laughs> Significant population out there. And speaking of polls and acceptance, the, the, there was a recent Zogby poll that had 76% of the adult population uh, believe that uh, drug prohibition has failed. I mean, they, they couched it in the word drug war. They said the drug war has failed. So we have a, a, large, a large segment of society who believe fundamental change is necessary in our drug policy, and a good number of them are already convinced that repealing prohibition and replacing it with a uh, regulated market to control the sale and distribution of these substances, similar to what we have now for alcohol and tobacco, is the only common-sense way to go. So for the Libertarian Party, to, after all these years of advocacy, to turn away just as they're getting to the front oh, door makes me... And yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's why I ran in 2008. That was my platform in 2008. And for us to, yeah. to turn our back on it is just uh, crazy. Well, but that, you know, I wouldn't make too much about out of a letter to the editor. No. You're going to see at least one letter to the editor like that in LP News at least once a year. Uh, and Yeah, but, the, but you know, Sean, I was, I was told, I, was, I, keep, I keep interrupting you. I forgot to tell you in our, yeah. in our, in our pre-phone call that I do that a lot. <laughs> but okay. you know, when, you think, when you say just one letter and you're going to see that. But I met a lot of resistance at the Libertarian National Headquarters from Shane Corey with regards to Making wow. drug policy an issue, so it's not I'm just one letter. Executive director. Pardon me. So I'm not going to say anything bad about Shane, and he's no longer executive director anyway. Uh, the, the the strength of the Libertarian Party, though, I really don't look so much. Even having been political director and having served on the national committee myself, and having a lot of respect for the work that they do. I mean, it is vitally important, but 
having said that, the real power of the Libertarian Party is in the field. It's with the candidates. It's the candidates who go out and define the platform for the people. It's not some platform committee or some convention uh, that we have every two years that defines our platform really in people's minds. It's what our candidates do. And I've found in running candidates here in North Carolina and across the country that the ones who are more radical do better. And this sort of ties in exactly with my work with Free and Equal that we were talking about earlier. You have this grassroots movement of all kinds of people all across the country, libertarians, greens, constitution parties, all other different kinds of parties, and independents, who want something completely different than what we're getting now, and they're willing to get up and advocate for that. And candidates who do that, even candidates within the Democratic and Republican parties, who are mavericks who do that, are gaining a lot of support. You can win with issues like this now where you're proposing radical change, such as just end drug prohibition completely. Now, you know, because of that doggy poll result, I mean, that's just one indicator. Now, people are looking for that. And so if a libertarian candidate goes out and, and is fully libertarian and doesn't apologize for anything, that a libertarian believes, but instead tries to present it to people in a common sense way. I'm convinced that everything about the libertarian drug policy uh, or really any libertarian issue is something that can be expressed in a common sense way that people will accept in two sentences. You know, well, that's that's part of that's part of our problem. Right. You know, and so we need we need to go out there and be that voice of the people, and when people hear that that radical voice out there saying, we need change, we're going to find a whole lot more people. Uh, every election, more and more people are going to be flocking to that message. Well, that's, we that's part of the problem we have, though, Sean. I think part of, our, part of the problem the Libertarian Party has is that we're, we're not able, in the main, uh, to use common sense in describing our, our policies and our beliefs. And we have... Uh, yeah. We have a candidate, uh, the, one of the, a couple of the presidential candidates, Mike, Mike Jankosian, uh, he's, he's on your board of directors at Free and Equal. Yeah. He was a presidential candidate. And yeah. I'm, 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 I'm assuming, I haven't spoken to Mike in a while, but I'm assuming that he's going to make another shot at it in 2012. But the one candidate that, or the one uh, libertarian that's making the most, uh, most noise at this time is uh, Wayne Allen Root. So let me ask yeah. you what you think uh, is on tap for us in 2012. I know that in politics that's like a, a lifetime, but do you think it that... Uh, it's way too early. But let me tell you this. Now, I, 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 having been in the Libertarian Party for a while, one thing that I noticed... Now, when you talk about drug policy solely, i got to tell you, I'm still kind of pinching myself over Bob Barr. You? (laughs) I had to take Ambien for a month after that guy screwed me in the ass. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I got to tell you, you know, I am going to say something about Bob here in a moment, but the mere fact that we were able to run a former drug warrior on the libertarian platform on a drug issue uh, for president, I, I... I'm still kind of charmed by that whole thing. Well, I, yeah, I don't mean to say that it, that I wasn't charmed at for a few moments, but he didn't do anything with it, Sean. He didn't do a goddamn thing well, with it. And that was exactly my point. That's exactly the point I was going to make, which is that you look at Michael Badnark, who was our candidate before, who was a guy who showed up at the convention with $10 in his pocket. 
but we liked him because he re he represented the libertarian message uh, purely, and he was very telegenic. Um, you know, we really liked we we looked at the candidates with a mind to uh, who's going to look best. You know, for my mom in Tucson, Arizona. You know, when when we get him on C-SPAN or something like that, when we get him on CNN, and uh, you know, and so we chose Michael, and Michael, you know, Bob Barr hardly raised any more money, and hardly got any more votes than than Michael Bednar. It really wasn't that significant a difference. Well, how do you think that's going to be in 2012? Since since Bob Barr was this was kind of like a dream dream candidate for for many of us, and didn't and did so poorly. And now we, we but we went down that road before in 1988 when we ran Ron Paul, and Ron Paul's a great guy who libertarians love, and they're really loving him these days for a very good reason. But we found the same thing happen that running somebody who was a former representative didn't necessarily get us that many more votes. Well, that's the point that I'm trying um, to get to is that we, so we had a exactly the point. Is that we? <laughs> and it has nothing to. We, I think this is pervasive now within the Libertarian Party. I think most people who are going to show up at the 2012 convention and pick a candidate get this: that we've got nothing to lose by being purely libertarian, by running, even if it's a no-name guy like Michael Badnard. Well, at least we know that he's going to go out and represent libertarian views properly, and that we aren't going to have to explain anything to people about. Uh, it says this, but your platform says that. What's the difference? You know, we didn't have any of those problems with Michael. Well, let me let me let me let me interject. Let me interject something. The the point that I was trying to to get to is that, you know, Bob Barr was a recognized uh, political uh, individual, and you know, it yeah. looked like we were making a you know somewhat of a progressive choice. But but by the virtue of the fact that he didn't raise very much money and didn't get very many votes, do you think in 2012 the the more radical faction of the of the party is going to come back and say, "Look, we tried it your way, and now we're going back to our pure that's roots of." Pardon me. That's exactly what I'm saying. So you think that's it's going to happen? So that so you're going to get the Mary Ruarts that are going to control the party as opposed to a more moderate. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to name names because I have no idea who's going to be involved in the race. Well, that. yeah, no, not by name, but just by by ideology. Do you think we're going to to to, in my in my view, do you think we're going to backpedal and, and, and go more radical and say screw it? And... Oh, I do. No, I, well, well, I don't think it's screw it. I think it's I, there's a more positive way to put it, which is that. Well, not with uh, not with it, Mary Ruard as your candidate. There's not a more positive way to spin it for the general polit for the general electric electorate. Yeah, well, I mean, if we were able to present a candidate like Mary Ruard. For example, I have no idea if she's going to run again or not. Uh, but uh, you know that that's a that's a face that we would be really proud to put up there. It could you know I'm certainly not going to close the door to somebody who already is famous or who already has some success as a Democrat or a Republican in the political political sphere. You know, there's even a scenario where Wayne Allen Root could be that guy. You look at Wayne. I you know I consider Wayne a friend. And I've been watching him since he first got involved in the Libertarian Party, and I've noticed over time how he just seems to become more and more libertarian every day. And, you know, he's got another three years. Uh, it could very well be that Wayne could be that guy, you know, championing, championing everything 
that the Libertarian Party has stood for for all these years uh, in a way that's going to make, you know, that your average Libertarian is going to have absolutely no argument with it all. It's going to be proud. But if you, but if we're talking have, about have them representing, but it's going to be it's going to be somebody who's able to do that. But don't really you think we need to have somebody who can who can who can not only appeal to to the core libertarians and we don't have that many. But do you think I mean, don't you think we need somebody who can appeal to uh, people outside the party? I mean, we need someone who can who well, can who can excite people to to look at the libertarian perspective. Yeah. But I'm not. I don't. I'm not so sure. You know, I got a pretty good flavor of everybody when when I ran and debated and spoke with them. And yeah. I'm not too sure ideologies represented by uh, represented by uh, Mary Ruart or some of the more I'll call them extreme candidates. They may play well inside our small tent, but I don't think they're going to help us make the tent bigger. Am I am I wrong? No, the tent's getting bigger for a couple of reasons. Number one is that America's coming our way. Uh, no matter you know, no matter what we do, America is becoming more libertarian on its own because there's more of a need for libertarian ideas, and people are rising up and seeing that. And certainly, the popularity of Ron Paul, which has never been higher, is a testament to that. The growth of a group like Campaign for Liberty. Uh, and all of these tea parties across the country, definitely a testament to libertarian ideas uh, rising among the populace. And at the same time, as the part, and this is true of every third party that's active right now, I would say this with the Greens and the Constitution Party as well, that they are growing up, that, that part, part of the problem of being a third party is the, an ideologically based party it's that the first people that you're going to attract are people who make their decisions based purely on reason, based purely on what they read and what they think. And these people generally don't really care what other people think about uh, their beliefs because they, they're, they're going after the truth. They're going after what they think is right. And rather than being loved you know, for being popular you know, because of what they believe, uh, and that's unfortunately about two percent of the population. So the third parties basically already have that crowd. Now they need to figure out how to be social, you know, how to become popular. That that popularity is not really such a bad thing. Uh, you know, to be able to get those issues across to people in ways that make, like I said, in two sentences, make pure common sense, get their heads nodding, and people saying, "Yeah, you got that right." Uh, and there are candidates like that. The Libertarian Party has had several candidates like that recently. A lot of people get elected to local office, and a lot of times it's because they're already known in their communities. They're already community activists. They've already done something for the people who have a chance to vote for them. Uh, you look at somebody like Mike Munger in North Carolina, who got us one of our best results ever for our second best result ever for governor and got the Libertarian Party on the ballot for the next four years because of that result. He was the kind of candidate who was able to connect with people, who was able to, you know, had a very quick wit, was able to say something funny that got to the truth of the matter immediately. Um, I'll give you another example. As far back as 1992, it's one I'm particularly proud of. The candidate in North Carolina who did the best ever was a fellow named Scott McLaughlin. And his 
uh, entire platform was very simple. Repeal the sales tax on food and clothing. That was it. That was something that people could immediately apprehend, really connected with people. And, uh, you know, he was the first person to put that on the table here in North Carolina. Got 4.5% of the vote. Uh, and, of course, Democrats and Republicans were saying, oh, this is just another one of those wacky libertarian ideas. How could we survive without sales tax, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Five years later, Democrats and Republicans in our General Assembly are arguing with each other for who gets credit for repealing the sales tax on food and clothing. So not only are there libertarian candidates out there who are capable of articulating these issues, but even getting 4.5% of the vote, they can still start a ball rolling to enact some major public policy change. Yeah, but that's, but that's, on, the, that's on the local level, and I understand and, and uh, agree with you there. But when, you, when you're talking about national politics, you have to expand your scope, obviously, uh, much, much more broadly than... Uh, local issues and, you know, repealing sales tax on clothing and food is obviously very good. But uh, yeah. when you get into the national arena, you need something more than that. And when our candidates, our, our, our presidential and vice presidential candidates are selected for uh, 2012, they're going to need uh, to, to be much, uh, much more open to, uh, to other uh, to other strategies. And where I see a problem for us is when, when we look at uh, some of our more extreme candidates and, and some of their views, uh, I, I, have, I found that they just don't resonate outside of our, of our core constituency, uh, the Libertarian Party. And it's important that we, we be, more, uh, be more responsive to the, to the general population. And some of our, our rhetoric, uh, much of our rhetoric that comes from, uh, from these candidates it turns a lot of people off. So, uh, well, there, there's a sequence. There's a sequence of events, though. It's very important to pay attention to. There are two things that happened after the last election. Number one was the uh, bailout from Bush, and then this, and then the stimulus from Obama, and the debt that those programs have incurred have really woken people up. To a lot of our issues in a way that we couldn't have even done ourselves before those things happened. And the other is simply the conduct of the Obama administration, that he sold himself on hope and on a whole wide range of reforms, including drug policy reform, which as soon as he, as soon as he got into office, he turned his back on all of that. And it's just the same old, same old again. People are waking up to that, too. There were a lot of people who got activated in politics because of Barack Obama. And the reason why is because, like I said, he offered a message of hope, something that people have been craving. We've been sold politics here so exclusively for so long uh, that when a candidate comes along with a strong message of hope, uh, you know that gets people really excited. Gets people back into the back into the system, paying attention again. And now a whole bunch of those people are saying, "Hey, you sold me a bunch of hope. Where is it? You know, I, I demand my hope." And they're going to stay involved, and they're going to stay active, and they're going to keep working for the things that they believed that somebody like Barack Obama was going to be able to help them with. 
Well, the 2000, the 2008 election. They're going to be more savvy, and they're going to be looking for candidates who really have a track record of delivering those things. And that's sort of, I think that's where you get back to the local community. Uh, I'm not sure how much top-down, with the kind of money that a Libertarian Party candidate can generate, I don't know how much they can do from the presidential candidate seat top-down to change the scenario. But what does change the scenario are local Libertarians getting involved in their communities. Now, I'm convinced that the average person who's not familiar with the Libertarian Party bases their opinion of the Libertarian Party on how they feel about the first person that they ever met who they knew was a Libertarian. If they like that person, they think that person was cool, somebody who was active in their community and doing something positive, then they're going to think Libertarians in general are pretty cool. And if it was somebody who was a jerk, and telling them that they were, you know, evil for sending their kid to a government school uh, or driving on a government road or something like that, well, they're probably going to think all libertarians are jerks, and they're not going to pay much attention to a presidential candidate when he's on CNN. But, you know, for those people who have that positive impression at that local level, that personal level, you know, if they see, uh, you know, Bob Barr on CNN, the you know, former libertarian presidential candidate, we're going to say, oh, yeah, I know, I know Daniel. Daniel's a cool, he's a libertarian, he's a cool guy. Well, I wonder what this libertarian has to say. That's, I think, really the strategy that's going to work for us, rather than trying to think that the presidential candidate can do anything other than be articulate and brief. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that you know that's that's a subject that you and I are going to come back and visit on another on another show. But I want to. We're getting close to the the end of our hour, and I want to. I want to close out. We've, we've talked about, uh, you know, the sex part of ballot, the sexiness of ballot access. We've talked about sex, drugs. Now I want to talk a little bit, finish up uh, we're talking about some rock and roll and your, in, your insane project. So I want to give a, give a clue. I, I gave a clue up at the head of the show about your music collection, which obviously is very vast and extensive. And that you began to listen to it from in alphabetical order back in March of 2007. And as of yeah. uh, April 15th of this year, over more than two years later, you're only to the letter M. So let's talk just a couple of minutes before we close out about, uh, about your insane project. It is a little front-loaded. There are more, more artists uh, in the A's and C's than in the XYs and Z's. But... Uh, you know, it's just the joy of living in the 21st century. The technology makes it really easy for me to do something that I always wanted to do because I've always been a huge record collector, and now I'm really good on file sharing um, and where I can, you know, be trading albums with people and, and get uh, pretty much whatever I want without even getting dressed. Just sitting at my computer, it's a wonderful world that we live in. And since all of my music collection now resides on a terabyte, hard drive that was sitting on top of my CPU here, it was pretty easy. I decided to go ahead and do it, and it's been a lot of fun reconnecting with a lot of things that I haven't listened to in a long time. What were um, some of the biggest surprises you had when you started going through it? What was some of, uh, some of the bigger surprises musically that, uh, that, that uh, well, took, took you back to the time when you first listened to them? Oh, golly. Uh, well, I'm telling Johnny Mitchell now, which was a, a real love of mine when I was a teenager and yeah, there's a lot of stuff about that that sort of takes you right back uh, I I think for me is how good some artists are because I was able to track down pretty much the entire discography of James Brown 
mm-hmm. for example. Uh, and except I don't really like Christmas records or live albums. I have a few of his live albums, but not all of them. And I don't have any of his Christmas albums. But I tracked down pretty much everything else. And it took me about a month to listen to them all. Uh, you know, if I was going to be listening to everything in sequence. And at the end of the month, I'm sorry. I wanted to go back and start over. James Brown's that good. You know, the revelation to me that, yes, I, 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 after all, I do think the Beatles really are the greatest rock band ever. You know? <laughs> um, yes, I, I have to agree with you. Yeah, I mean, Johnny Cash was, was another one. You know, I guess when you sit down and you listen to, to the stuff that intently and, and with a program or a sequence in mind, um, you know, like the Beatles was another example. I really just sat down and listened to it and just really marveled at a lot of the little things that they did. Now, are you listening to the most of, most of this? Are you listening to most of this over your computer, or are you an audio yeah. file with a nice uh, sound system to? No, I'm I'm not so much of an audio file. Although, of course, I do like you know higher quality recordings, larger bit rates, and all that. But um, no, just listening to it over my computer or over the stinky little speakers that came with my computer. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't invested in the big sound system yet. So at the, at, the, at the end of your uh, your uh, your insane project, uh, what do you uh, are, are you going to be sane or more insane? I don't know. It's because um, you're pretty fucking crazy now. <laughs> I don't I don't feel any crazier, but of course I would say that. Uh, you know, uh, it's. Uh, I, yeah, I guess I just measure my craziness based on the looks that I get from some people when I try to explain this to them. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've sort of been taking a detour lately and building up a classical library and really reconnecting with classical music, too, and discovering a lot of things that I either had only heard when I was a kid or, uh, you know, I had never heard before, and discovering things that I never really paid much attention to before and decided I really like it, like Renaissance sacred music. Um, you know, just really been digging a lot of that. Uh, Edvard Grieg, somebody I'd never paid much attention to before, and now I realize, wow, you know, I really love this guy. Um, although I would say my favorite of all that has to be Haydn. Haydn is just so damn happy all the time. <laughs> you, just, you just can't be sad when you're listening to Joseph Haydn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. Also, you know, and just the beauty of file sharing too, and finding all the stuff on the internet is that you can really explore some kinds of music. What was the last thing you listened to today before we uh, before we got together? What were you listening well, to today? Uh, right now, I'm, I'm taking a break from uh, some music of, I believe, Marin Murray. Murray's? I think it's how it's pronounced. It's somebody I only found out about, I'd never heard of before. French composer from, uh, I believe, it's early 18th century, a contemporary of Vivaldi. I think, I'm thinking late Baroque. Um, that's another thing, too, that I found very interesting is that I never really cared much about anything other than the music. I had an opportunity to sell off all my records, these these beauties that I've been collecting ever since I was 14, and put not just a lot of my money, but a lot of my heart and soul into it. 
and I gave myself an opportunity to chicken out uh, at one point when I went through them just to pull out the things that I wanted to keep that I thought were irreplaceable or valuable. And I realized, oh, no, I'm not attached to these physical objects at all. I'm not attached to the vinyl. I'm not attached to the, the liner notes or anything like that. I just, I'm just attached to the music itself. Um, so I, don't, I can't tell you too much about Marilyn Murray, except that uh, it's just very delightful light background music. You know, if, if you like somebody like Antonio Vivaldi or uh, Tommaso Albinoni, you know, I really like this stuff. Well, I got I got one more question for you, Sean. And before I ask you, I want to I want to thank you for taking the time out of your evening to join us here inside the Opium Den. I thought the conversation was uh, was good. It was it was smart, mostly on your side, but it was it was smart <laughs> smart nonetheless. But I got I got to ask you this last question uh, before we sign off here. Um, does music sound better when you're high? Some music does, I think. Um, I don't know. Being high all the time, it's hard for me to judge. <laughs> Ding! There's my boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to try it the other way sometime and see if there's something to this. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, Sean, I want you to just tell us one more time uh, the, the uh, website for Free and Equal. And, uh, it's freeandequal.org. Uh, feel free to check us out and see the war that we're waging across the country to uh, try to break down the ballot access barriers and let everybody who wants to have their voice in the system and run for office. All right, Sean. Thanks a lot, my good friend. And uh, we'll get back again uh, in maybe a month or so and uh, get get, uh, more more involved in the Libertarian Party politics. Oh, anytime. I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm happy to hear from you again, my friend. Same here, Sean. Thank you very much, buddy. All right, thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Uh, nice conversation with Sean Haw, uh, the executive director of uh, Free and Equal Elections Foundation and a, and a friend of mine from my Libertarian Party presidential hopeful days. So we run a little bit. We've run a little bit long tonight. If anybody is still with us, we appreciate it. And I know the reason you're still here is because you've got to hear our most popular segment every week: Cops on Drugs. Now I had my conversation with uh, Sean. Not been as uh, stimulating for me. We'd have heard, ended earlier and had a few more of the uh, Cops on Drugs tonight. But we're going to have. We're going to close out the show with with one particular story and. I kind of like it for its correlation to the uh, to the Catholic Church in Baltimore. Um, a Baltimore police officer was arrested uh, early this month for trying to shake down an undercover internal affairs investigator who was posing as a drug dealer. We had uh, Officer Michael Sylvester. Uh, Michael is apparently 29 years old. And he was arrested after stealing $70 from the uh, Internal Affairs uh, undercover investigator. Uh, The police later recovered three small bags of cocaine from Officer Sylvester's locker. But uh, he had recently been transferred, and this is the part that that correlates to the the Catholic Church. Um, 
Mr. Uh, Mr. Sylvester, he had recently been transferred from Central District's Pennsylvania Avenue Task Force, uh, working one of the East Coast's largest drug markets. Uh, he was transferred after complaints about him extorting drug dealers. Now, uh, where I find the parallel is that when a, ped- a priest was found to be a pedophile in one parish, they kept it quiet and just transferred him to another parish. And apparently, we have a parallel dynamic going on, at least in Baltimore, where a dirty cop is uncovered and rather than disciplined and dismissed, he is shuttled off to another police force. So that's our, uh, that's our cops on drug story tonight. Uh, whoop, we've got another, uh, another uh, comment here. Oh, another one from Pam of Roman, who was Sean's uh, friend. Um, and this is what uh, Pam has uh, sent to us. We're going to read this, uh, and then we're going to close out, uh, close out the opium den for this evening. Pam writes in, As a clinical psychologist who treats addicts and alcoholics, the so-called war on drugs has left a wake of victims in its path. It is appalling to me that 60% of prosecuted non-violent crimes are for simple possession of marijuana, which is far less dangerous than either alcohol or tobacco. Our drug policy, Pam ends up with, our drug policy has only succeeded in benefiting organized crime. Well, I couldn't say it any better, Pam, and I want to thank you for saying it for us. So uh, until next week, remember, when good people obey bad law, bad law never changes.